Some stories were never supposed to be told. Stories that exist in the twilight between science and the supernatural, between history and horror. Stories that speak of terrifying things. Stories that you want to hear. Stories that you need to hear. Stories that will sink their teeth in and never let you go. My name is Mike Brown, and this is Pleasing Terrors. Please stay tuned after the episode for a special preview of the new podcast, Monster Madness. Pleasing Terrors Podcast, Episode 36, Through a Glass Darkly. It is one of the most famous stories in existence, a tragedy that ushered in an age of tragedies. On the night of April 14, 1912, the massive luxury liner RMS Titanic, a ship over 800 feet in length, cruised the icy waters of the North Atlantic, 370 miles south of Newfoundland carrying over 2,000 passengers and crew. It had been the largest ship in the world and had only recently been eclipsed by its sister ship in the White Star Line, the Britannic, a few months earlier. It carried some of the wealthiest people in the world, as well as some of the poorest, all of them protected from disaster by watertight compartments and what they thought to be an unbreachable hull. Everyone on board would soon discover that this was not true. Traveling at full speed, the ship entered an area known as Iceberg Alley, a vast field of ice flows containing immense icebergs, some of which towered over 200 feet high. Shortly before midnight, a lookout spotted one of these directly in the path of the ship. An attempt was made to steer around it but they were too late, and the starboard side of the Titanic struck the iceberg, causing hull plates to buckle and allowing water to begin seeping into the interior. The ship was safe so long as no more than four of its 16 watertight compartments were compromised. The collision had ruptured five of them. There was nothing that could be done. The Titanic was doomed. As the realization that the ship was sinking set in, panic ensued, especially when it was realized that the ship only had enough lifeboats to save a fraction of those aboard. Women and children were given priority as the bow of the ship began to sink and water flooded compartment after compartment. At one point, a panicked crowd charged the lifeboats and had to be driven back at gunpoint. Two and a half hours after the collision, just over 700 survivors, adrift in the lifeboats, watched in horror as the ship, now broken into two pieces, sank beneath the waves with over 1,500 people still aboard, or afloat in the frozen waters where death would claim them in minutes. 
news of the disaster traveled around the world, and as shocking as it was, for some, what was even more disturbing, as they stared at their newspapers, was that they had read this story before. Fourteen years earlier, author Morgan Robertson had published a novella titled Futility. It was set aboard a ship called the Titan, a luxury passenger liner over 800 feet in length that struck an iceberg in the North Atlantic in the month of April, resulting in a massive loss of life due to the ship having an insufficient number of lifeboats. After the tragedy of the Titanic, the book was released under a new title, The Wreck of the Titan. Many people were fascinated by the similarities between the real-life event and the fictional one from over a decade earlier, and wondered if Robertson had benefited from some sort of precognition that had allowed him a glimpse into the future. He dismissed the idea, responding that he had based the story on his observations of shipbuilding trends in the passenger liner industry. However, it is possible that he may have also found inspiration in two short stories published just a few years before he wrote his novella, and that he was not the first to tell a story that eerily foreshadowed the fate of the Titanic. On March 22, 1886, London's Pall Mall Gazette published a story titled How the Male Steamer Went Down in the Mid-Atlantic by a Survivor. It was a story of a crew member aboard a large ship carrying mail and passengers across the Atlantic. The sailor worries about the fact that the ship does not carry enough lifeboats to save everyone aboard if there should be a disaster. His fears are soon realized when the ship collides with another vessel in a fog bank, suffering damage to its starboard side. The other ship sinks almost immediately, and the mail ship begins to list revealing that it will not be able to remain afloat for much longer. Panic ensues as the passengers and crew rush the lifeboats, and as on the Titanic 26 years later, the officers have to use firearms to force them back. When the lifeboats are filled, there are hundreds of people left aboard with nowhere to go, and they perish as the ship sinks beneath the waves. From the Old World to the New, published in 1892, tells the story of the Majestic, a ship that seems very similar to the Titanic, and one which is sailing through the North Atlantic, passing close to a large field of icebergs. Mr. Compton, a passenger aboard the ship, is a psychic who can communicate with other psychics over long distances through a form of telepathy utilizing automatic writing. A practitioner of automatic writing opens their mind to a form of spirit possession where the controlling entity uses the psychic to write messages. Compton receives a message that a friend and a fellow psychic is in dire circumstances after the ship that he was traveling on was sunk by an iceberg. Compton uses the psychic messages he receives to convince the captain of the Majestic to rescue his friend. The author of both short stories was William Thomas Stead, who was considered one of the greatest 
and perhaps most notorious journalist of the Victorian era. Stead was born in 1849 to a Congregationalist minister and his wife in Embleton, Northumberland, in northern England. Though he would spend most of his childhood growing up in the town of Howden on the Tyne, he was educated at home, and his studies were heavily influenced by the religious convictions of his father and the desire for social reforms that were fostered by his mother, especially in matters concerning women and children. He became the editor of the Northern Echo, a newspaper in the town of Darlington in northeast England. He was the youngest editor of a newspaper in Great Britain at that time. He later moved to London and rose to the position of editor of the conservative newspaper, the Pall Mall Gazette, and quickly set about turning the periodical into an instrument of social change. Stead instituted other changes as well becoming the first editor in Great Britain to hire female journalists. He was a believer in what came to be known as the new journalism, in which the power of the press would be employed to pressure the government to make policy changes. He said, I felt the sacredness of the power placed in my hands to be used on behalf of the poor, the outcast, and the oppressed. His first success was the publication of a pamphlet titled The Bitter Cry of Outcast London, which forced the government to address the problems of the horrific slums inhabited by London's poor. However, his most famous campaign, some would ultimately label it infamous, was the one which he waged against sex trafficking, specifically the trafficking of underage girls to brothels on the continent particularly girls who were under the age of 16. At the time, the age of consent was 13 years old. In July of 1885, he published an expose in the Pall Mall Gazette titled The Maiden Tribute of Modern Babylon, which was published in a series of installments with lurid titles such as The Violation of Virgins and Strapping Girls Down. The Maiden articles sold out, creating a secondary market where issues were sold for many times their original price. Public outrage led to the passage of the Criminal Law Amendment Act, which raised the age of consent for girls from 13 to 16. The centerpiece of the series was titled, A Child of 13 Bought for Five Pounds. He introduced the story by writing, let me conclude the chapter of horrors by one incident, and only one of those which are constantly occurring in those dread regions of subterranean vice in which sexual crime flourishes almost unchecked. I can personally vouch for the absolute accuracy of every fact in the narrative. He continues by telling the story of a child named Lily who was sold by her alcoholic parents and who were made aware that she would be sexually exploited, but received the news with indifference, without even inquiring where she was going to. Stead continued, The little girl, all unsuspecting the purpose for which she was destined, was told that she must go with this strange woman. She was taken to what he described as a house of ill fame, where she was led to a room, undressed, placed in a bed, and with the help of chloroform, 
rendered unconscious. The woman who had brought her there left the room, and then a few minutes later, a man entered and closed the door behind him. Shortly thereafter, Lily started screaming, There's a man in the room. Take me home. After Lily's story was published, rival newspapers conducted their own investigation and made a shocking discovery. Lily's real name was Eliza Armstrong, and she was purchased from her mother by a woman named Rebecca Jarrett with the assurance that the girl would be employed as a maid. The mother denied any knowledge that her daughter would be sexually exploited. Jarrett took Eliza from her home to a house of ill fame where she was rendered unconscious with chloroform and left alone in the room. Shortly thereafter, a man entered and sat in a chair in the corner and waited. When Eliza awoke, she saw the man and screamed. He promptly fled the room. That man was William Stead. He had not touched her, but had played the part of a customer so that the charade could proceed to its conclusion. The Lily story was true in a sense, but it was also a fabrication. Stead had arranged the whole thing, from Eliza's purchase to her presence in the room, and ultimately to her being sent to France where she was hidden away with a family, while the Maiden Tribute series ran its course. She didn't know that she had become a character in a story of Stead's creation, and that when she had awakened in that room, the face she saw was that of the author of her misery. While Stead's motivation was laudable, his actions with regard to Eliza were beyond reprehensible. He had cast her in the leading role of a drama without her consent, deceiving her parents in the process. He had also violated the trust of the public, and for that, he would have to pay a price. Ironically, the first to be charged under the new law that his series had been so instrumental in getting passed were Stead and his accomplices. He spent three months in prison. Stead was at heart a storyteller and had used his stories to affect social change. He demonstrated a belief that the veracity of a story was sometimes secondary to its intended purpose. In the Lily story, he had manufactured a fiction that he believed revealed a greater truth. In 1889, Stead resigned from the Pall Mall Gazette and started a series of other publications with varying degrees of success. He also became more deeply involved in spiritualism, the belief that the living can communicate with the dead, and he indulged his many paranormal interests. He had been involved with spiritualism for close to a decade at that point, having attended his first seance in 1881, and believed that he had psychic powers with which he was able to communicate with both the living and the dead through telepathy in the form of automatic writing. He believed that he was in contact with invisible beings that resided on another plane of existence. His interest in the supernatural and avid support of spiritualism did much to damage his reputation, though Stead continued to work hard on political issues which he deemed important. He was a pacifist 
and campaign for a United States of Europe, which he hoped would avert a future war. As a journalist, he reported on the Hague Peace Conferences of 1889 and 1907, publishing a daily paper during the four-month conference. In 1912, he was invited by President Howard Taft to attend a peace conference at Carnegie Hall in New York. And so in April of that year, he boarded a luxury liner and set sail for the United States. Given his interest in the supernatural, it is no surprise to learn that Stead enjoyed a good ghost story. On the night of April 14th, he sat in the saloon of the passenger liner and shared the most terrifying story he knew with a man named Frederick K. Seward. Stead cautioned that he was hesitant to repeat the story and that he would never write it because the story was cursed and to even hear it was to risk death. With an introduction like that, Seward doubtless couldn't wait to hear what he said next. Stead began by saying that the story was told to him by his good friend Douglas Murray, a man of wealth and privilege who indulged in archaeology as a hobby. In 1889, along with a group of friends, Murray visited Egypt, touring ancient ruins including those of Thebes, located in the modern city of Luxor. While there, he met a man who offered to sell him a mummy case, a decorative wooden case which normally contained the body of a mummy, though the man told him that this case was empty. Murray was intrigued, and so they arranged another meeting. When he examined the case the following day, he described the face painted on its cover as being that of a woman of strange beauty. Her pleasing features only marred by eyes that seemed to project an aura of malevolence. The seller said that it dated from around the year 1050 BC and had belonged to a royal priestess of Amun-Ra, the creator of all things, whose name means the Hidden One. It was discovered by grave robbers in the 1840s, who destroyed the mummy, but carried away the case in which it had been enclosed. How this man had come to possess it, he did not say. Satisfied with its authenticity and somewhat in awe of its disturbing beauty, they purchased the case and made plans to return to Cairo before setting sail for London. From that moment on, a sense of doom seemed to enshroud Murray and others in the party as well, as they fell victim to a series of disasters. A few days after the purchase, while Murray was duck hunting on the Nile, his shotgun exploded, severely injuring his arm. He was carried to the boat and the group set out for Cairo to seek medical treatment. However, the winds turned against them and slowed their progress, so that by the time they reached help, the wound had turned gangrenous, and they were left with no choice but to amputate his arm. Back in London, Murray displayed the case in his home, but its presence seemed to cast a shadow over the house. It was said to be palpable, and worried him so much that when a reporter asked to borrow it, he was happy to have it removed from his home, even if only for a little while. The journalist also suffered from having it in her possession. Her dogs became violent and dangerous to keep in the house, 
she was constantly sick, and soon thereafter her fiancé ended their relationship. Events reached a climax when her mother died after falling down the stairs. She soon returned the case to Murray. Convinced now that the case was haunted and probably cursed, Murray had no intention of keeping it in his home. He instead offered it to a friend, Mr. Wheeler. But when he was plagued by similar misfortunes as the reporter, he gave the case to his sister and her husband, who ultimately also suffered from its presence. The sister sent the case to a photographer and was horrified to see that when the photographic plate was developed, the picture showed the face of a living woman whose eyes were filled with hatred. Copies of the photo were given to several people afterwards, and it was reported that in rooms where the photos were displayed, anything made of glass was shattered. The photographer died a short time later. Wheeler's sister traced the ownership of the case back to Murray and sought his advice. Perhaps she hoped that he would be willing to take it back, but he refused. He wanted nothing more to do with it and advised her to get rid of it as well. She decided to offer it to the British Museum and contacted an Egyptologist to help with arranging the transfer. However, before he turned it over to the museum, he wanted a chance to study it himself and had it brought to his home. He was almost instantly inflicted with incurable insomnia and starved for sleep. He died within a few days. It was as if a ghostly serial killer had been set loose in London, murdering anyone who came into her presence. Finally, someone was sent to collect the case and transport it to the museum. That person died a week later. Journalist and author Bertram Fletcher Robinson, whose stories about the ghostly hounds of Dartmoor inspired Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes story, The Hound of the Baskervilles, was intrigued by the stories about the mummy case and spent months confirming that the accounts of supernatural activity and untimely deaths that followed the artifact were true. He urged that the museum display the case in such a way that it might appease the vengeful spirit. He wrote, Perhaps it is that the priestess only used her powers against those who brought her into the light of day and kept her as an ornament of a private room, but that now, standing among the queens and princesses of equal rank, she no longer makes use of the malign powers she possesses. However, despite Robinson's hopes, the rage of the priestess of Amun-Ra did not subside, and despite his sympathy, he was not spared. Robinson died soon after from typhoid fever. The museum decided that they wanted to be rid of the mummy case and found a buyer in the United States. And here we come to the ultimate horrifying twist in Stead's tale. The mummy case of the priestess of Amun-Ra was aboard the very passenger liner on which they now traveled, bound for America. Now that Seward had heard the story, he too was cursed. Even in so vast a ship could he escape the mummy's wrath. Only time would tell. What Stead didn't tell him was that the story of the mummy's curse was a fantasy concocted by Douglas Murray and himself. The mummy case was real. They had seen it at the British Museum. But much of the rest of the story 
the supernatural elements, the priestess of Amun-Ra, the mysterious deaths were all the creation of these two master storytellers. It may be that they did so for entertainment, or it may be that given Stead's belief in the power of sensational storytelling, that ghost stories like the one he shared on his voyage to the United States were a form of promotion for his spiritualist beliefs. Stead had been reporting real-life events and crafting fictional ones for many years, and as in the case of Eliza Strong, he was not shy about mixing the two. Stead finished his story shortly after 10 p.m., thanked his fellow passengers for their attention, and excused himself from the table. He left the saloon and retired to his cabin for a much-deserved rest after a long evening of scary stories. He didn't yet realize that he would never see New York again, or that his life could now be measured in hours. He was awakened at 11.40 p.m. to a loud noise and a shudder that passed through the skin of the ship. If anyone should be quick to figure out what was happening, it was Stead. His father had been a minister, and much of his early education was religious in nature. He was no doubt familiar with 1 Corinthians 13.12, which reads, For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know even also as I am known. For so long, the messages had been all around him, hidden in stories, and now their reality was made manifest. Now he had only to look in the mirror to see the author of his misery. Stead was a believer in the supernatural and in the power of entities removed from our plane of existence, but able to communicate with the living through thought and inspiration, sometimes clearly, but at other times in ways that were vague and suggestive. He had begun communicating with the dead decades before, and had allowed spirits into his mind and given them the ability to write with his hand. He was a believer in the power of stories and their ability to affect change in the real world. In 1886, he had written the story How the Mail Steamer Went Down in the Mid-Atlantic by a Survivor advocating for an increase of the number of lifeboats carried aboard passenger ships. In 1892, he followed it with From the Old World to the New, in which a psychic, Mr. Compton, a passenger aboard a ship that resembled the Titanic, and one clearly inspired by Stead himself, used his telepathic automatic writing to try to save a man trapped on an iceberg in the aftermath of a collision a man who was also a psychic and pleading to be saved. He had helped craft the tale of the priestess of Amun-Ra and incorporated the vessel in which he was traveling into that story, foolishly assuming that he was safe from the doom that followed those who invoked her name, foolishly forgetting that stories have power and that fictional stories are the most powerful stories of all. Finally, he had created the story of Lily. Though in his bed aboard ship, in a way, he was back in that room in the house of ill fame, where he had last seen Eliza Strong, as she woke screaming that there was a man in her room and that she wanted to go home. 
Only now, he was Eliza, trapped in a story of his own creation and unable to escape while desperately wishing that he were safe at home with his family. The noise that had awakened him at 11.40 p.m. was the sound of ice grinding into the steel plates of the hull. It was the sound of names being carved into tombstones. William Stead, passenger aboard the RMS Titanic, rose from his bed, dressed, and stepped out to meet his fate. There were several people later who would remember him in his final hours. He gave his life jacket to another passenger and was seen helping women and children into the lifeboats. One survivor, Mrs. William Shelley, reported that when he could do no more, he stood alone at the edge of the deck in a prayerful attitude of profound meditation. He was last seen by another survivor, Philip Mock, clinging to a lifeboat before his frozen limbs finally compelled him to let go and sink beneath the surface. His body was never recovered. Under the weight of a story he had first envisioned 26 years earlier and embellished with garish tales of supernatural murder, he drifted into the depths of the North Atlantic, lost forever. However, the story of the priestess of Amun-Ra and her curse and the story of William Stead, the man who predicted the very situation that claimed his life, live on. There is nothing harder to kill than a good story. This episode of the Pleasing Terrors podcast was written and performed by Mike Brown. It was edited, mixed, and produced by Michael Dalbello at Charleston Sound Studio. For more information on Pleasing Terrors, please visit us on Facebook and Twitter at pleasingtears.com. Thank you for listening. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Monster Madness, a podcast dedicated to all sorts of creature features. On this show, we will be discussing the supernatural, the undead, giants, aliens, and even sometimes humans, because let's face it, people can be garbage. This podcast is hosted by not one, not two, but three people. And the point of this episode is to introduce ourselves to you. My name is Erica Gwynn. I've been podcasting for a few years now and have been a part of quite a few shows. I have a true crime pod called The Apex and the Abyss that I host myself. I help research on a missing person show called The Banished. I do purposefully bad Photoshop art for a podcast called The Cast and the Furious. And I have guest spotted on a show called The Podcast of Terror with Corey Scott and Matt Stein. So my fellow hosts and I love horror movies and came up with the idea for this show based on that simple fact alone. We talk about them all the time. So we figured, why not record ourselves talking about them? Maybe other people would like that too. And then the idea just kept snowballing. But before we dive into the details of the show, let's meet the other hosts. Matt, take it away. Yeah, I'm, I'm the other one. One of the other ones, Matt Stein. Uh, I actually co-host the show, the aforementioned Cast and Furious. 
uh, with a friend of mine, Matt Vincent. I also uh, host, co-host Podcast of Terror. Um, I like long walks on the beach, too. Candlelit dinners. Um, anything pumpkin spice. Um, I'm and okay with chocolate. Yeah, I love White Claws um, because they're refreshing when it's hot out. And it's hot where I live for six weeks. And I've been podcasting for like 13 years. Actually, not quite 10, 9, 10. A lot. Really? Yeah. Wow. You learned something today. I did. Okay, Dan, you're up. I'm Dan Gwynn, the third host of the Monster Podcast. For me, uh, this is the first podcast that I've been on. I'm a big fan of kayak fishing, craft beers, and watching monster movies and discussing them with my friends. And that's us. So let's dive into what the show actually is going to be. So you have an idea of what you're in for. Each Monday on Monster Madness, we plan on covering the good, the bad, the obscure, and movies you have never even heard of. On each episode, we will dissect the movie from start to finish, and then we will tell you if we recommend it or not. We will also have a game portion to each episode once we wrap up the film discussion. I will provide the questions, and Matt and Dan will go head-to-head each week to see who will win the glorious bragging rights. We'd also like to note that Monster Madness seasons will each have some sort of theme. For instance, our first season of episodes will feature universal monster movies and their modern counterparts, or movies that were inspired by the classics. But we will also break from that mold every so often to talk about new movies in the theaters and, of course, our holiday specials. But speaking of specials, that brings me to my final talking point. Featurette Fridays. Every so often we will release bonus content on Fridays that will showcase a written work such as a book, comic, graphic novel, a video game, or an interview from someone within the horror community. These episodes may be short or long depending on the topic, but our goal is to cover the horror genre across the entire spectrum, from the silver screen, TV, to a written work. And with that, I think that just about covers everything. Now that you've met all of us, we really hope that you continue to tune in each week. Um, You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Maybe I'll make an untapped. Dan and I like to drink beer, so maybe. Maybe. You can find us on all those platforms, Monster Madness Pod. You can email the show at monstermadnesspod at gmail.com. Otherwise, we really hope that you continue to come back. Thanks, guys.